Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Sean O'Neill. I'm the Associate Director of Adult Programming and Partnerships in the Department of Public Programming and Learning at the AGO, where we foster creativity, learning, and dialogue through experiences with art and ideas, like talks, special events, performances, screenings, art camps, youth and community events, and studio art programs for more than 250,000 people here in Toronto each year. Uh, we acknowledge that we're gathered today on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. And I'm very happy to welcome you to tonight's conversation, which features the AGO's not-so-new-anymore assistant curator of Canadian and Indigenous art, Wanda Nanabush, in conversation with the artist and curator, Louis Jacob. About six months ago, a group of us walked up to U of T to meet with Louis and Barbara Fisher, who I'm glad is also here tonight. Hello, Barbara, wave wherever you are. There she is. Um, to talk about the respective Toronto-focused exhibitions we were planning and to figure out how to create some moments of connection between the two shows. Tonight is one of those moments. Wanda's show, Tributes and Tributaries, 1971 to 1989, brings together more than 100 works by 65 artists and collectives to highlight an innovative period in Toronto art history. Amidst the social and political upheavals of their time, the generation of artists that emerged in Toronto during the 70s and 80s pushed the boundaries of conventional painting, sculpture, and photography, exploring new ways of art making, including video, installation, and performance. And in conjunction with that show, we're presenting a film and video festival next February in partnership with V-Tape and CFMDC, and a performance series that culminates this week. It started on October 1st with Rebecca Belmore for Nuit Blanche, um, and finishes this week with Amy Henderson and Evan Weber's Performance Encyclopedia Project. Uh, and the performative moment of that, although there's open rehearsals all week, is on Sunday at 2 p.m. Um, Tributes and Tributaries is on view through May 7th, with a rotation of works happening in January, right? Yeah. So it's a pretty significant rotation, so come back and visit and, and come to the public programs in the winter. And Form Follows Fiction, Art and Artists in Toronto, was curated by the artist and curator Louis Jacob for Art Museum at U of T. And it concentrates on a period of more than 50 years to consider the ways in which artists visualize Toronto. Presenting a thematic clustering of work by 86 artists, the exhibition is premised on the tendency of artists in this city to favor performative and allegorical procedures to articulate their sense of place. Four gestures, mapping, modeling, performing, and congregating, serve as guideposts to a diverse array of artistic practices that Louis brings together. And that show, part of it, the Barnegie part of it, has already closed, but the UTAC part of it continues until December 10th. Um, so tonight, we've asked Wanda and Louis to come up. Wanda for 10 minutes, Louis for 10 minutes, each to speak about their shows, about their work, about their thinking. And then they're going to come up and ask each other some questions, and we'll open it to you to finish it off. Um, we're hoping that we'll hear about the resonances and contrasts that emerge between the two shows, their respective processes of reckoning with and recording the local histories um, that they've undertaken with, I think, tremendous vision and energy in both cases. And we also hope to hear how they might imagine possible futures for our city um, and the great art that we produce. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome First, Wanda Nanabush. Hello, everybody. It's really nice to see you all here tonight. And I'm really excited to speak to Louis. Uh, we had a 
couple of conversations beforehand, and we've had a one, two, one or two since. And so now we get to share those kind of background thinking with all of you, and I'm really excited by that. I am Anishinaabe Kwe from Beausoleil First Nation, and I also want to acknowledge the land of Canada as Indigenous land from coast to coast. And we share it with everybody who's come since, and we are all treaty people in this land. I want to start with this clicker, because it will help me move through these images. So we, um, uh, Marilyn, who's our designer, uh, I told her a little bit about where my thinking on Toronto came from, and it started from the underground rivers and creeks and this kind of idea of things that are buried. And she designed uh, this logo. And these, this one also has Garrison Creek in it. So the first uh, thing I was thinking about is the AGO invited me in, specifically Andrew Hunter, to curate this show. And we were thinking about the 60s and the 70s. And I pushed the time period into the 70s and 80s, partly because I wanted to open up a conversation that opens us on to where we are now. And I felt like if we stay in the 60s and 70s, we never ever get to the 80s and then never get to the 90s. And so we never really address questions of race, questions of colonization, questions that uh, go beyond the 60s and 70s. So this is partly why we pushed the time period forward. And also there were people who came into the AGO who did um, a massive amount of work collecting work from the 70s and 80s, specifically like Philip Monk and Barbara Fisher, who's here, uh, and Michelle Jakes as well. So there was enough work that we could sort of do a look back and see what was happening um, in Toronto in the 70s and the 80s. So the time frame begins for this show with Miss General Ideas pageant in 1971. And the reason I chose that is uh, partly because half of it took place at the A-Space and half of it took place at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And so it sort of marks this relationship to the Artist Friends Centre movement which began in the 70s. And also marks the relationship of general idea to this kind of um, a space, the idea of, of creating space for art, but also the kind of revolution that came afterwards when a space kind of wanted to go more towards a community-centered uh, ethos. Um, and then it ends in 1989, and this is slightly arbitrary, because uh, Rebecca Belmore's piece that's in the show is uh, 1987 to 1991. <laughs> and part of that is 1987 is when she performed the 12 Angry Crinolins, which was a street-based performance. So General Ideas performance was very much in the context of the visual arts scene, very much about what um, the kind of art market sort of represents. It, it also uh, points out the sort of development of art stars, it plays around with all those kinds of um, very in-the-know things. And Rebecca's piece took place in the streets, in the middle of what most people think of as nowhere, but could be the center of your world if you live there, Thunder Bay, Ontario. And it relates outside of the art system. It relates to a visit by the, the royals 
and it relates to a long-standing protest of a community against extraction in their lands. So 12 women created dresses and marched down the streets of Thunder Bay. So the actual piece she had, and this is also a thing about Toronto artists and art in general, sat on her porch, because who has storage for a big you know, dress with a beaver hive hanging off the butt? Uh, so it sat on her porch through Thunder Bay winters and <laughs> Thunder Bay springs, and um, maybe wasn't, uh, uh, didn't survive uh, well enough to uh, be part of an institution like the AGO, so it was recreated. So she remade it, and then she also remade it again. So it was done in 1989 the first time, and then again by 1991. So I close with a work that takes place outside of Toronto for a specific reason. And that's because she was here living in Toronto, um, doing the standard thing, which is to go to OCA at the time, or OCADU as it is now called, and working with the established artists that live and work in Toronto. And one of these painters, because it was largely painters, uh, said to her, do you think your Indianness is going to interfere with your artwork, your art making? And in very good Anishinaabe Kwe, which means indigenous woman, uh, fashion, she kind of gave him the finger and walked out of Okadu moved back to her home territory to make work that she felt was relevant to her people, to her place, and to her time. And she managed to make a career for herself that fits this kind of model that we work with um, from a place that is outside of the city center of Toronto. And so that's what this time period sort of marks. So it opens us into the 90s when race becomes actually much more of a, a guiding principle and a moment of fighting in the arts community uh, beyond the visual arts. It also happens in writing. And it's very big in Toronto. So the title, uh, Tributes and Tributaries. So Tributes comes from um, the rivers, but how I got there is through an artwork by Robert Houle. I was sort of walking along, um, coming out of uh, Trinity Bellwoods Park, needing some sense of um, when you come from outside of the city, you can't find yourself in the city for a very long time. It takes a while. And it was so hard for me to get used to the, the looking down because all your horizon is blocked. And that's an experience of Toronto. And so that day I was looking down and um, there was the map at the, the, map at the bottom uh, at, when you come out of the park. And it had um, nibi, which is water in my language. And it had uh, the word water in all these different uh, languages. And I was drawn to that. Um, as a Anishinaabekwe, I'm a protector of the water, so I immediately felt at home there. So I kept walking, and it just arbitrarily went down the street. And then all of a sudden, there were these little bronze fish, these little bronze frogs in the ground. And I thought, what a beautiful artist. Like, who understands that sometimes we're looking down, and we need beauty when we look down? And it changed my mood. It changed my feeling. It changed everything uh, I was feeling about the city. 
And I come to this park, Stanley Park, and I see he's continued all the uh, animals, but he put them in 3D, like sculpture, so you could touch them. And he put them on the ground, in the sand, where the kids could play with them. And so it, it really uh, responded to my love of performance art, which teaches you to look at space differently. It teaches you to look at walls and alleyways and all these things as modes of adventure and, and intrigue and intellect. So um, that's sort of where tributaries came. So I thought, if I could think of an exhibition that matched the city, it should feel like um, something that's buried that we didn't see, but was there, and something that reminds us of who we wanted to be, and maybe something we wanted to pick up that we didn't continue. So that's an underlying thing of the show. The other part of it is the, the idea that, I think when we build structures, architecture, institutions, these kinds of things, collections, we sometimes miss the adventure of, of things. We miss the um, casual way in which we join things together, the casual ways in which things collide and they create new thoughts, new feelings, new adventures, just by placing them beside each other, even though they may not belong. And so that's the other part of it. And also, as an audience member, I wanted you to be able to wander through. So I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not giving a history, actually, at all. I'm giving you pathways, that's it. Just little rivers to travel down. Whatever river you want to travel down, <laughs> you go. <laughs> and you find your own sort of place in that. And there are certain tributaries that were prominent at the time. Anti-colonialism was one, feminism was another, racism was another. Um, the queer community here was huge um, and had a real impact on the way that we um, the way that we do politics today. So I sort of wanted people to be able to travel those tributaries on their own. Um, and tributes is partly because everybody always says in Toronto, we don't have like a history of artists, like no lineages and people don't um, acknowledge those who've come before and I actually don't think that's true. If we look at the way artists operate, they're always looking at each other's work and they're always paying tribute to each other and they're always sort of responding to things that have come before. Um, so I wanted to look at that. So it starts from the place of, and I'm a talker, so you have to wave me when I have two minutes left. Um, so it starts from the notion that I think that there was a cultural revolution happening at the time. However you want to think about the world re world, word revolution, um, I think that people returned to Toronto in order to create culture, in order to create a space where they could make the art that they wanted to make without the same constraints that they found elsewhere. And Toronto at the time was a kind of open space where that could be done. And so the first piece you see is Carl, Carol Conde and Carl Beveridge's Art is Political. And that's also central because it was an exhibition that happened at the AGO that shocked the AGO because they were looking for this minimalist sculpture that Carl did that's so beautiful. We have a lot of it in the collection, none of it you'll see in the show. Um, <laughs> even though it's very beautiful. <laughs> um, but this is a beautiful piece because it kind of sums up that movement from the minimalism all the way to kind of their collective work together. And also it sums up that sort of movement to break that line between art and society, between art and politics, between art and life. 
um, and also that the life of the artist is also creating the culture that we live in. And then Cultural Revolution by Jeff Thomas is a piece that sort of marks Toronto as Indigenous territory, um, but an invisible one. Like, how do we find it? How do we see it? Where is it? And so he looks for it in this tag, Cultural Revolution on the wall. And if you think about Indigenous people coming out of residential schools post-1960s, there is like this huge movement of artists that end up going to art school, that end up coming out, end up painting and doing all this work, and we're going through a huge cultural renaissance at the time. We are saying like our culture is valuable and we start doing it in public everywhere. Um, so that's a story that's not often told about this time period. And then you have Revolutionary Tea Party by Lillian Allen. So another thing I wanted to talk about is in the, six, in the 70s and the 80s, there was no separation, not a clear separation between theater, dance, performance, uh, dub, visual arts. All these people were hanging, musicians, you know, artists were musicians, like the artist jazz band, for example. Um, so these crossovers, I think we miss by siloing art, and I'm, I'm, I can say I failed miserably to bring that to light enough in this show. But we have Lillian. And it also sort of marks out the way in which uh, when a culture is just beginning, things happen at kitchen tables, they happen like over beers, they happen over coffee, and those kind of, that kind of aspect of the arts culture I really love. So it's thematically organized, and that's only so that we can think about now and think about these works from the position of now. So they're very loose. These are themes that could fit any artwork today. Um, so performance. We have um, performance. I put performance because there, it wasn't performance art. I wanted to talk about the birth of performance art, but also the way performance starts impacting photography, painting, sculpture. It starts um, sort of changing all art forms which you can see in the photography room, self slash portrait. And uh, I think it's interesting, I saw a bunch of students go in thinking about selfie culture. And this is early selfie culture for, thanks interpretive planner who helped me with that idea. Um, but thinking about this, uh, that culture as a political culture, what, you know, looking back at what people were doing, performing for the cameras, performing for, um, video cameras, how does that change the way that we relate to the constant self-portraiture we're under right now, and can it help us sort of find a new pathway through that? The image room is really about the questioning of the veracity of the image, the truthfulness of the image, but also the way images started to circulate in mass media culture. And the other part of this that I wanted to look at is um, taking the titans, I call you the titans, Michael Snow, <laughs> and Robin Collier, and uh, uh, Robert Phones, um, trying to give a more intimate um, moment, to look at something intimately, to be able to walk up close in a small space, um, and to uh, maybe um, just have a new relationship, an intimate relationship. And with Robin, um, instead of putting a sculpture in, I wanted to look at his photography because it, it really relates to his uh, archaeological, or his, um, his practice of sculpture in its relationship to architecture. 
And you can see it in the photographs. And so I thought it was a really good way to look at him in a different way, an older way. And uh, formative triptych, June Clark. This is in that room. And uh, June is somebody that's never shown at the AGO. So that's also one of the hidden tributaries of the time. And the body room. And I think some of the work, especially um, Jamali Hassan and Ron Benner, they're doing massive anti-colonial critiques in their work that are so relevant for today and way ahead of their time. Almost all the work is so much ahead of its time. Um, so it's really exciting to look at it. I'm going to skip ahead because I'm running out of time. So the two streams that I think are important that we've pulled out to extend into the gallery space is the performance art stream and the video stream. And both of these are two very difficult things for an institution like the Art Gallery of Ontario to both exhibit and to collect. And so I think it was important for us to look at these two streams, partly because Toronto is known internationally for them. Um, Toronto is known to be uh, the best in these two fields, to have pushed the boundaries of these fields very strongly. And so it's good for an institution to sort of look at them and say, why is it so difficult? What could we do differently? And so by pulling out live performance inside Sydney Eaton and Walker Court, and by pulling out the festival, we can sort of ask ourselves how we can kind of go forward in these two streams that we haven't done well in so far. Um, and I think that is all I have time for. But we are going to talk to each other, and we're going to talk to you, and hopefully you will pull out um, some of the deeper things that we want to talk to you about today. Thanks. Well, it's great to see everyone out tonight. Uh, as I look around, I see uh, there's so many amazing producers of, of art, uh, curators, narrators, historians, teachers. Uh, so it's quite an honor to be speaking with Wanda uh, tonight, uh, but also to be speaking with you. Uh, so many of you are active uh, contributors to these uh, stories that Wanda and I are trying in different ways to to try to present, uh, wrap our heads around, complicate, et cetera. Uh, so I've curated the exhibition, Form Follows Fiction, Art and Artists in Toronto, at the Art Museum at UFT. Uh, so the exhibition continues until December 10th. I'm not going to do a representation of the exhibition, so I'm not going to kind of give you the curatorial premise uh, uh, of the show, but what I have decided to do is to uh, follow a couple of works uh, in the exhibition and then extrapolate from them. So kind of uh, pull a thread of the show and kind of try to uh, weave something um, here tonight. Uh, one of the works in the exhibition that is uh, quite a privilege to be able to exhibit uh, at, at uh, the Barnicky Gallery UFT is Robert Houle's, uh, you, you see it on the screen right now, 
Uh, it's a series of four works, uh, and the series is titled Premises for Self-Rule from 1994. Uh, so here you see three of uh, this larger series uh, uh, installed in the wall together. Uh, it's amazing uh, to be able to see these works together. They're scattered in different collections uh, across the country, so to be able to see them together is um, quite an amazing experience. Um, I won't go a lot into the work, uh, but suffice to say that each of these works refers to a specific piece of legislation that uh, shapes the relationship that we have right now between indigenous and non-indigenous people. Uh, so this is a close-up of one of them that refers specifically to the Constitution Act of 1982. And here's a couple of close-ups just to give you a kind of more intimate sense of what the work looks like. Um, uh, I'm very intrigued by this monochrome panel. I'm, I'm very interested in, in monochromes and, and the idea of artists making monochromatic painting. Uh, the gestures of, of Robert Hull's painting um, and also these amazing moments where you, I, I imagine him using almost like his fingernail and doing these kind of gestural moments that I read as a kind of signature or as at least a kind of imprint of, of his, his presence in, in one specific moment in time. Uh, another work that you see kind of if you turn around and you walk through the archway at the gallery uh, is this work by Gordon Librett, uh, Get Hold of This Space from 1974. Uh, another, I, I think of it as another kind of monochrome, uh, or it speaks to, to a certain idea of, of uh, a kind of non-iconic uh, artistic practice and what the absence of an icon um, offers artists as a possibility. And this work is shown alongside various historical documents. Uh, so here you have the Toronto Purchase uh, from 1787. And remarkably, so, so the Toronto Purchase is the agreement that was conducted between the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation and the, uh, the British Crown uh, that shapes this ground that we're in right now. Uh, and what's amazing, uh, for me at least, is to see that the person who drew up the agreement, this, this document, uh, uh, part of the, the document has this drawing of, of the land. So you see uh, on the right-hand side of this manuscript the, sh the familiar shoreline of Lake Ontario. You see you know, what's now Toronto Island. Before it was an island, when it was a peninsula, it became an island in the 19th century after a storm uh, breached the land bridge, and it's been an island ever since. But the rest of the territory of the land uh, appears as a kind of empty page that's delineated through this act of making a rectangle. And it's amazing for us now, today, to think about what the surveyor who drafted up this document saw and how that surveyor chose to represent uh, what they saw. You know, I imagine a wealth of, of uh, uh, geographical features, uh, natural life, uh, cultural life, economic life, historical life, etc. And all of this appears as a kind of blankness of, of this blank page uh, that's delineated um, in this act of making a rectangle on the sheet of paper. 
So if you think about the title of the exhibition, Form Follows Fiction, part of the idea of the exhibition is to try to see what are some of the enabling fictions that have shaped the form of the environment that we see around us, that we are actually live and work in every day. Uh, beside that uh, document of the Toronto Purchase is this uh, uh, one of the first uh, urban planning documents. So this was done two years after the Toronto Purchase. Uh, this is a drawing by John Collins, uh, plan for the harbor of Toronto with a proposed town and settlement of 1788. So you see a, a second fiction coming into the picture, right? You start with the fiction of what I call the vacant lot, you know, the rectangle in a kind of uh, space understood to be empty. Uh, and then that's overlaid with a second fiction, the fiction of a grid. Uh, and then that's followed by uh, these drawings uh, from 1797 by Sir David William Smith, uh, which are the plans uh, for actually building the settlement. Uh, so you see the grid reappearing, uh, reappearing uh, and astonishingly this other document which has the grid and you see people people's names being inscribed in each little square of the grid. Uh, so in a, in, in a very direct and clear manner, we see uh, this moment of getting hold of this space. In a process that Wanda is very right to call uh, colonialism. So just to go back to, to this uh, Toronto Purchase document, uh, and now I'm kind of going to extrapolate from the exhibition and go on a, on a speculation with you. Uh, this drawing reminds me of another historical document that's not in the exhibition, but I'm just going to kind of uh, show it to you. Uh, it's this photograph uh, that's in the Toronto, uh, City of Toronto archives from 1957, and it, it was a photo, it's an aerial view of the city center uh, with this kind of square blanked out of the, of the image. You know, we might, I'm tempted to say Photoshop, but obviously this is the days before Photoshop. But you get the idea. Uh, there's a kind of reappearance of a vacant lot uh, in the neighborhood that for a long time was known as the Ward. Uh, so one of the city's first uh, uh, working class and, and immigrant neighborhoods, immigrant uh, including immigrants of non-British uh, backgrounds. Uh, so the first Chinatown was there, uh, a, a, a large black community was there, a Jewish community as well. So what, what we might identify as the face of immigrant uh, multicultural Toronto today, uh, well, this was uh, the birth of, of that in the city. And this is registered as a kind of emptiness. Uh, this image was presented to the architects who submitted proposals for the international architectural competition to build the new city hall uh, that Vilia Ravel eventually won, the Finnish architect. Uh, so this image was given to all of the, the architects who were going to submit drawings so that they could, to help them envision the land on which the building would be built, depicted as empty and blank and, and as a kind of empty square that you can then do something with. Uh, just thinking about the Lauren Harris exhibition that was here at the AGO uh, only a few months ago this summer, um, here's a painting of, of, of a view from this blank square uh, from the Ward neighborhood uh, in 1911. So this is a view from the ground. Uh, there's 
workers' houses, etc. And in the background, you see the large Eaton's manufacturing building uh, looming kind of in this, in this beautiful golden light. Uh, also, uh, here's a view from the top of that Eaton's manufacturing building uh, looking north at the Ward neighborhood. Uh, so you see these houses, etc. So all of this is what in that previous image appears as this kind of blank square. Um, and by the mid-50s, uh, the blank square is being realized. So blocks and blocks of, of this neighborhood are being raised to the ground so that in the mid-50s they appear as parking lots. Uh, this was an image from the, uh, a group called Panda Associates Architectural Photography uh, from 1962 that was also included in the Lauren Harris exhibition, uh, showing the view of the same building that uh, Lauren Harris had painted uh, about fi uh, 50 years later, what this uh, environment looked like from the view of a photographer. So now I'll go back to this uh, City Hall image. Um, and connected to a work that is in the Formfulness Fiction exhibition, uh, this series of photographs by Peter McCallum uh, titled uh, Demolition Site. Uh, so they, they document uh, in the early 80s, so about 1980, 81, 82, 83, the intersection of Bathurst and King uh, and the large um, uh, former um, industrial building that was at that time uh, through the process of the city's deindustrialization. In the early 80s, this building was occupied by artists and used as artist studios. And Peter McCallum has documented over a few years the gradual demolition of this building and its return to the, the vacant lot, right? So this image uh, that we saw from the Toronto Purchase is something that I, I suggest that at the level of our imagination to help us understand something. It's something that recurs over and over again ahistorically and in a way that I would call allegorically. Um, there's a, a film uh, by David Anderson that's in the exhibition. It's called Tapperman. And Tapperman um, might remind you of Superman, like a superhero, uh, but it's also the name of the, the largest demolition company uh, in Toronto. So I'll just show a few stills um, just to give you a sense of what the work looks like. So it's, a, it's quite an amazing and very raw film. Uh, you can imagine David Anderson with this little film camera in 1974, uh, walking from Queen and Young and just walking north. So it's very shaky film. You know, there's no perfect lighting, no perfect framing. It's just someone walking, holding a film camera and almost scanning the street. Uh, so this is a moment. And you see the Tepperman, um, uh, um, hoarding, uh, uh, protecting viewers, uh, pedestrians, I guess, from the demolition site, uh, but also declaring uh, this moment of demolition uh, happening. And so the buildings in the background are the former Eaton's manufacturing zone that we saw in the Lauren Harris paintings in the moment of being um, demolished. There's Superman. <laughs> uh, he superimposed a, a couple of clips from Superman to kind of uh, imbue this sense, uh, uh, kind of sense of surreali surreality uh, and this weird idea of a super human, whatever that might mean to us. 
this amazing view, uh, you know, so this is now where the Eaton Center is. All of the, these blocks and blocks and blocks of the city are gone. Uh, now it's the Eaton Center. Uh, and it's amazing to, like when I first saw this, I was like, oh my God, of course, but it's astonishing to me that you would be able to see the Little Trinity Church from Young Street. I've never imagined it. Now it's kind of tucked in the armpit of the, of the Eaton Center. But of course you would be able to see it from Young Street because there was a street right there uh, where now is one of the entrances of the, of the mall. I like that little, I'm very curious about that little person standing there. Uh, I kind of imagine them uh, having a, a uh, premonitionary appearance in one of Lauren Harris's paintings. Uh, this is uh, titled In the Ward from 1920, so about 50 years before uh, David Anderson's film. I'll go back to the film. Oh, and here I imagine him uh, turning around. Uh, this is a painting by, uh, photographed by Arthur Goss uh, of one of the inhabitants at 88 Elizabeth Street. So some more people walking. Now that the artist has turned the corner at Dundas, okay, uh, and, and now we see the view uh, looking south and a couple of people walking around. Uh, in order to prepare for this presentation, I, I walked, I took my bike to Young Street uh, a couple of days ago and I just photographed, um, and there you go. So <laughs> uh, it, it's an interesting time warp. Uh, you know, you start to see that these artists uh, the work might have been made 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, but so many of the things that are being discussed do hit at something foundational about our experience in the city because they resonate with something that uh, we experience today. So I'll just show you a couple of photographs. This is kind of an, I love this image. Just seeing the earth. Uh, also those murals, like those, you see kind of previous forms of culture painted on the buildings. Uh, they were probably protected by the building that was there before, sandwiched in between. Now that building is gone, and that, I, I wonder what will happen to those murals. Uh, this is a block further south, another vacant lot uh, near where uh, Buddies in Bad Times Theater is. Kind of another view from that same lot. Uh, this is a vacant lot at um, where, this is where the world's biggest bookstore used to be. Look at the little square on which the tree, that poor little tree stands. Uh, this is another view of that same lot, uh, also a, a glimpse of an interesting mural again. Uh, and this is Young and College. Uh, the tall building in the foreground that kind of occupies most of the, the, the field um, is later to be demolished. Uh, and there's a construction site right now across the street from it. I am curious to see these people walking in front of the photograph. You know, I kind of, it just feels like Lauren Harris, David Anderson, like these people surrounded by this kind of moments of, of something changing, right? Something that exists at the moment of uh, its disappearance or burial to use uh, Wanda's metaphor. So I'll, I'll just go back and kind of quickly um, wrap it up. Um, 
you know, so today this uh, vacant lot has produced a beautiful building, right? Villiers Revelle's uh, New City Hall is a building that I, I love. It's, it's, a, it's an astonishing piece of architecture. Uh, it's much loved by the city. Uh, but it's interesting, what is our relationship uh, to the layers of, of history that we don't experience as layers, we only experience as presence, but uh, are there ways for us to uh, see this presence as, as layered, right, with, with uh, absence. Um, here's a Gauss photograph uh, of that same site. Uh, this is from 1912. Uh, and recently I just found someone online, Jonathan Paulson, has, has done, uh, uh, is going back to the location of these older photographs and um, making a comparison. And this is one way of layering that I find very interesting. Uh, Andy Fabo was just uh, at the exhibition the other day and he was narrating, uh, he let me eavesdrop on his conversation actually. <laughs> so he's telling some of the stories of the building that Peter McCallum had, photo had documented. And so I feel like this is a, a precious moment of layering, of hearing someone's stories uh, so that I can see more in the images that, I'm, that I've selected in the exhibition. Uh, very generous of him to let me share, let me participate in that. Uh, I'll end with one thing. Uh, so here's a, another mural. Uh, this is a painting by Rita Latendre uh, titled Sunrise. Uh, this is a photograph of the mural at the Neil Wychik residence uh, on Gerard East. Uh, and pre, uh, a year ago before the exhibition, uh, Barbara Fisher and I co-organized uh, a conference titled This is Paradise, Art and Artists in Toronto. And uh, during Duane's presentation at the conference, he talked about this piece uh, and I asked him um, if he would share some images uh, that I can share with you guys today. And he kindly um, agreed to that. Uh, so he visited uh, the site of, of Rita Latundra's mural, which actually still exists, and yet it doesn't exist. Uh, or it exists in this weird way where it's fully there, and it's a monumental work, right? It's a painting that's like five, six, seven stories high. It's immense, and it's invisible, right? And so just to think of what, what, how do we allegorize that? So, so there's a high-rise building that's built right next to it, the mural exists and yet is completely invisible. And, and here we see Duane uh, trying to look through the crack uh, to, to, to activate uh, the layer, this invisibility as something layered, right? This absence of something layered, as something that you can still connect to somehow. So I'll, I'll end with that. Thanks so much. Hello. Okay. I'm so happy you ended with that because that's actually one of the first questions I was going to ask you. Um, and this is uh, uh, one of the things where uh, in the exhibition um, upstairs on the fourth floor, there's a documentary off the wall what was originally supposed to be there. <laughs> That's a substitute for something I couldn't get a hold of in a copy that we could exhibit, was the time lapse that the Ryerson students did of the sky rise. 
covering uh, Rita Laton's um, uh, public monument. Um, and for me, very similarly, I wanted that in the show because I, I also think that that's our experience of the city, is things um, disappearing and reappearing all the time, or new things coming and things disappearing. And um, I wanted to ask you, uh, and it also served a second function, which your vacant lot is also talking about, which is um, the way in which, um, for me, indigenous histories and indigenous artists kind of erased from the landscape of Toronto, um, and also our sort of stake in this land is kind of erased from uh, the city. So I wanted to ask you, what does art do when it looks at such a monumental thing like that? What does art, uh, in the sense of Rita Latandra's mural, for example, yeah, or it seems to me that art complicates the picture. I, I think that that's what art does. Uh, art often documents something, often represents something, um, and these are things that documentary uh, works do very well, also. But I think what makes art art is that art complicates the picture. So it might represent something, it might document something, but it also produces an excess that um, becomes useful for people like you and me, uh, and, I, I, and I think become useful for the public that comes to engage with these proposals uh, where a, new combination of works that some of which we might already know, some of which we may not know, but their combination produces energies that didn't exist before that might actually uh, be useful in the present time. So I would say art complicates the picture. All right. Yeah, I, I was very interested in the metaphor of burying that you used, you know, because um, when I was working in the exhibition, this idea of the vacant lot, I should say, is only one possible thread to pull from the show. The exhibition has many other things, and it's organized according to a principle of counterpoints. So there's a kind of vacant lot room, but then there's like the, the gooey stuff room, which I understand as the kind of uh, complication or, or contradiction of this idea of space understood as a vacant lot. So I should just kind of make that clear. But thinking about your show, I was really interested that the idea of vacancy and the idea of burial are not identical. They kind of hint at similar things. Um, so I wanted to ask you that, because in the curatorial panel for the exhibition, you mentioned something very beautifully. Uh, you said, the city likes to bury things. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Um, well, I mean, I meant it quite literally. like. Um, the creeks and the rivers could have been anything. Like, everything has a possibility, multiple possibilities. We chose to put it in a sewer. Like, what does that say about the psyche that has created or the, what, what we have created, and how does that feed, like, who we are now? <laughs> in some ways, it's great. In some ways, not so much. But we, all this energy is created around that. So we have this group, Lost Rivers, right? So we have these people who like, are constantly venturing around in the sewer system, creating like discovery walks and doing all this kind of energy around um, sort of reanimating that space outside of its um, sewerness. 
Um, <laughs> we have the idea or the image for me of um, ice age water. So when we talk about Toronto as a space with no history, to me that is such a violent thing to say, to, like as an indigenous person. You took ice age water and shat in it. <laughs> like, seriously. Um, so to me, that's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, so if, if an artist looks at that, they don't see that. They see, oh, what was the life that was there? And how do I bring that to the surface? So it's a, it's a kind of energy, a creational energy that I was interested in, in, in Robert Hull's gesture and the way that it creates something for us now, right? It creates something for me to gloam onto, something for me to build something out of. Um, so he's not stuck with this idea, this negative picture, actually. He's creating energies and producing more things. Um, so, uh, and I think Toronto, in the gesture of saying it has no history, which is something that the art world seems to keep saying about itself, I don't know. Um, for me, that's a, a mode of forgetting. It's a mode of burying. It's a mode of, of, of not relating to what's actually taken place. Um, and so there's part of uh, curating for me that takes place at a, um, a gut level or an intuitional level. I'm not very rational when I curate. I curate from my body, <laughs> um, and I curate like not knowing exactly where I'm going. Um, but that idea, uh, that bodily process also was a metaphor for me in how to curate. So to bring something buried inside of myself to the surface without uh, just being up here all the time mm -hmm. and trying to create a story that we think is the right story or the proper story or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, what kind of story would my body tell? Mm -hmm. Can you pass me the, the clicker? I just wanted to show one more image uh, that uh, Duane photographed. Uh, uh, we went through the exhibition together, and uh, he took this photograph of, of the, the Toronto Purchase document. And I find very interesting that he inverted the, the signification of this vacant lot. In this case, it's become a mirror. Um, and so, I, you know, when we talked about kind of uh, artists complicate the pictures, I, 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 I do find it very fascinating how you can take one metaphor and kind of um, invert it, switch it, do something else with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, this image of himself, like, imposed on the vacant lot is very much like um, bear against the wall in a Toronto cityscape in Jeff Thomas's photograph, Cultural Revolution, right? It's like creating presence uh -huh. that is actually present. Uh -huh. So it's actually there. It's just you can't see it. And I think like if we keep talking in this vein, like, like what you're saying is like the vacant lot is not really vacant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nothing fiction. is really buried. <laughs> like it's like it's all here. So why don't we deal with what's here instead of keep talking about what's absent as if it really is absent. It's not. It's right here. Mm -hmm. We just can't see it in the way that we need to. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one thing in relation to this is like both of us treated uh, the indigenous history of Toronto differently. Mm -hmm. So you went for the Toronto Purchase and Robert Hool. 
Um, and I went for um, uh, the Jeff Thomas, the land acknowledgement, and all the texts are translated into the language of this land, which is Anishinaabemowin. So it's kind of interesting. Um, maybe you can talk about why you began there with that. And why was that even a concern for you? Yeah. Um, I think this process of uh, learning to see the layers that are not immediately apparent in something is a process, right? And it is a process of learning. Uh, and, and you mentioned it in this metaphor of the tributes and tributaries of kind of seeing what's been buried, right? Uh, so, so I'm coming at it from that perspective of something that is an active investigation and a learning process for me. Uh, so seeing, oh my God, Robert Hull made this amazing work dealing with the legal <laughs> framework that determines the relationships that I'm in and that I don't even know what those relationships are or those, right? So for example, or these historical documents that I'm presenting as kind of uh, they're historical documents, but they're also allegories in the sense that they get, they contain forms that artists in Toronto seem to come uh, back to over and over again across different generations. Um, in terms of indigeneity, uh, you know, like seeing your practice, like for example, as a, as a curator, and uh, I remember the, um, oh my God, I'm blanking out. Act, Sovereign Acts exhibition that you curated at U of T, uh, where you uh, proposed that uh, performance art is something that wasn't like invented, you know, whenever, in the 70s, uh, but it's something that indigenous people have been doing at least for 150 years uh, within a context of colonialism, when uh, people would be kidnapped, taken to Europe, uh, and had to perform nativeness through the courts of, of Europe, to give one example. Uh, and so from that perspective, like doing research and starting to see the, 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 the indigenous postmodernism, as I might just call it, uh, when you start, when you put together like someone like uh, David Bakken, you know, who's kind of postmodern in, in the sense that he's doing a kind of queer performance of the self, and you put that alongside Carl Beam or Shelley Nero, um, who are same generation, same, uh, very interesting conversations in terms of artistic strategies, but for some reason, the way we frame those works is as like indigenous is here and white people are over here and we can't think of them together. But when you actually do look at the work, it reveals correspondences and energies uh, that I think are very productive and very interesting to look at. So that, that was kind of part of my motivation for, for that. That's interesting, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, can I ask you, so, so you know, you're here at the AGO, uh, but, but you also talked about that a lot of your energy and your insight uh, comes from what you call this kind of kitchen culture, right? The, the conversations that happen over beer, over breakfast, whatever. And the kind of those modes of communication that occur in those places. So when you were organizing this exhibition, how did you consider those questions about a culture that may have originated in the kitchen and that today we might experience at the AGO? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think it's... Uh, I think I present things 
that um, uh, should have happened. <laughs> if that makes sense. It's like only when we see it, we can see its possibility. So I think um, in that sense, uh, just even in talking to artists who are not normally shown at the AGO and their response to being in the AGO uh, is like a very emotional thing. And uh, I think all I wanted to show is that, um, very simply, is that, um, the, is that it always belonged. Like, it was never, n never not belonging here. So I think <laughs> it's just a simple thing without calling it out. Nobody's called out. You don't know who's indigenous. You don't know who's black. You don't know anything. Um, I wanted you just to look at the art and just like sort of take it in and say, yeah, everything here is, is uh, having a conversation with these ideas, these big ideas that we still deal. For me, the thematics are things that we're still dealing with in art. Like, it, they're, they're not done. They're not done questions. Um, uh, like the veracity of the image, the truthfulness of the image. We're still questioning this, right? Um, around trauma images or like anything we pick up, you can sort of place inside that. And I think, um, yeah, I'm rambling a little. No, but that's useful to know that you don't see a kind of contradiction between the culture of the kitchen and the culture of the museum, that it's always belonged in the museum. Yeah, yeah because I think museums were created by us. Mm -hmm. So it still belongs to us. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belong to anyone but us. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, that energy, that conversation of the kitchen should be the energy that an institution creates for all of us mm -hmm. in society. That's its point. Why does it, why does it exist? if it's not creating conversations for us as a society. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why we would have it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we should up? open it up yeah. to you guys because you're all looking so <laughs> damn sexy and I know you <laughs> want to ask questions. Yeah. So there are people with <laughs> microphones. There's a lovely lady here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you both touched on in the exhibitions how like the exhibition, I've seen Wanda's exhibition, has a certain time frame, and you both touched on um, things that happened before what influenced the exhibition, but as a tributary comes from somewhere and goes somewhere else, could you, and you alluded to it also at the beginning of saying you moved the timeline forward to early 70s, could you talk more about those influences, you also alluded to it with the performance art and where that came from, but the histor historically and also where it went after that in the future. Yeah, that feels like a very pointed question, which is good because it forces us to say more uh, like direct things. We can both be very poetic and philosophical and, you know, like, la, la, la. Um, I guess the, the underlying thing for me definitely is, well, one, I want to do a 90s and 2000s show, AGO. Um, but also, uh, I am looking at it from now, right? So I am asking this question, and I want everyone to ask themselves this question, where did art go, right? So if we, if we ask this question, and, the, and, the, and artists pushed us, and built beautiful things, beautiful institutions that we now get to enjoy. And um, what happened in the meantime? So if the point was 
to have a revolution in culture where art mattered to society and, and, and really dealt with, um, and I'm not a, uh, people mis sometimes misunderstand words that I use, so I am not a didactic political curator, nor am I interested in that kind of uh, thing in this context. I am in other contexts. Um, I am still interested in poesis and all these kinds of things. The, but it's that separation between art and society and art and politics, that break that happened. And it is a psychic break. We're still dealing with it. Like, uh, people have these, um, like defensive, massively defensive responses to this line that we want to create in the sand. And it's amazing. Um, if we think about what artists wanted to do and accomplish, what did we do? So I'll use two examples that are in the show just to make it easier. One is a film called Private Eyes by um, Lisa Steele and Kim Tomzak, which is in the screening room. Um, that film, posed the idea, a magical idea, that business would take over an art gallery, like the AGO, and they are thinking about the AGO when they're thinking about this. Um, so what would happen if a businessman ran the AGO? And so the film goes on, and it's done like a private detective, you know, investigating this thing. Um, and then you're sitting in the AGO, and it's like, okay, so we can ask what happened, right? In the meantime, it's a little bit prophetic in a certain vein, but it's not so clearly that way. You know, business didn't take over the AGO. It's not quite that simple. So we get to ask the questions of where we arrived, where do we want to be? Some parts will be like, some, some things will feel really great and some things will be like, okay, we need to rethink this for sure. Um, and another piece, uh, I think, is artist political because um, you look at, uh, I think that that kind of shock that happened, I don't think actually would happen now in that sense for this kind of work, um, but maybe something else that they were talking about uh, we do need to, to think about and it's like the way we make distinctions between different kinds of art the way we create hierarchies between artists and what their practices are. That's a very political thing that every institution does and I think we need to question what um, those histories are. Um, I'll just pick up on one quest, uh, aspect of your question. Um, uh, you know, you asked kind of where does art go? Um, I wanna pick up on the tributary idea, you know, cause it's different. I, I think it's very interesting that one that you're talking about tributaries and not rivers, you know? Uh, and it reminds me of what you talked about, like intimacy with titans, you know? Like tributaries are the, the minor uh, uh, waterways that actually feed the, the major waterways, right? And I think the metaphor is extremely important. Uh, this kind of attention that it's the minor, if, you, if we can call it that, that actually produces the major. Uh, that's a metaphor that I, I think is present in interesting ways in both of our works, uh, uh, both of the exhibitions. Um, you know, I have had people saying, oh, I'm so surprised that this artist, a kind of can you wouldn't have their canonical work that you might expect to see, but another work is there. Uh, I think there's something 
there's an ethos of the tributary in those kinds of gestures. Uh, but I do wonder if it is a kind of Toronto ethos and that saying, in that saying that there's a kind of no history, I wonder yeah. if what is, in my, in my most generous interpretation, I do think it's connected to colonialism and, and active erasure of, of lives, experiences, memories, et cetera. Um, but I do wonder if there's also an element that's become part of our cultural ethos uh, to be suspicious of history in the, in the sense of producing titans. You know, that's not the only kind of history available, but I think that the idea of there is no history, I sometimes hear in that an ethos of being suspicious of trying to narrate canons and trying to narrate uh, patrimonies, to use a very loaded word. Um, in favor of a, a different history narrations. You know, for example, John Davies has talked about gossip and, and, and queer histories as kind of history of the kitchen table, right? Histories that are oral and narrated in informal settings that have no, uh, no presence uh, in the official narrativizations. And yet they exist and they proliferate, but they don't produce narratives of titans necessarily. So I, I wonder if, if in, in, in approaching your question of where does art go, uh, this idea of the major and the minor, the tributary and the titanic, or whatever you want to call it, uh, will help us understand that. It's also that it's a flow. Uh -huh. So I don't like um, reactionary politics of any kind. So I would never put the minor over the major either. What I try to dispense with is the whole idea of major and minor. So let's just talk about, um, and that's why I have tribute in the title, partly because for me, I just wanted to pay tribute to a bunch of things that I love <laughs> and that I think a lot of us love. Um, and to be simple about that, to be really uh, honest about that. Um, and so when we even talk about canons and majors, suddenly people feel like they can't love them anymore. And I do. I love them all. And I want to continue loving them. But I want to place them with everybody else that I love too. <laughs> I'm like now sounding like I want to sing Kumbaya or something. Um, but I actually take seriously love also as a metaphor. Um, yeah, so and tributes also is, uh, tributaries is also because this was the flow. Toronto never has always flowed elsewhere. It's like, uh, it used to be the indigenous pathways of trade. So all of those little creeks and stuff that are buried is all the ways in which products have always traveled to and from this place. And so art is also this kind of product. And, um, uh, and this part you won't even see written in the exhibition. <laughs> it's all up here, but somebody might pick up on it. But you know, it's why uh, it also helps explain why there's people from London there, there's people from Guelph, there's people, because that's actually, Toronto, where the hell are the boundaries? And they keep changing. Like, what are the boundaries of Toronto? You know, and the, even the flow between New York and Toronto, between Paris and Toronto. Um, between Winnipeg and it's Toronto. It's like uh, these, yeah. this kind of vacant lot idea in the grid actually prevents us from seeing what actually takes place in a city like Toronto. It doesn't take place in this little boundary at all. That's not even how we live our lives. So why do we keep talking about it that way? Uh, more questions? 
Holy, we've said it all. We've <laughs> We're said done. No. Yeah. <laughs> There's there nothing more to be said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there we go. Rosemary or Philip. Um, I mean, there's lots of things that could be talked about. I just want, I was just one comment because I hear this all the time and, uh, you know, I feel that I'm uh, sort of propagated this idea of no history. But, you know, I've always thought there, there is a difference between no history. Well, of course there's been history. Uh, in my mind, there is no history writing. Mm -hmm. So when I say there's no history, well, okay, here you are producing it, now write it. But that's, nobody thinks there's no history. Nobody thinks that there is no history. Actually, that's not true. Of having no <laughs> history writing of whatever yeah. sort that we can identify with and, and go forward in the future. So I think that is the problem, not people saying, oh, we have no history, because also we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't think of you when I was thinking of that, actually, because I knew what you meant by it, and you're such a thoughtful, considerate, and deep human being, so I know you don't use these things flippantly. Um, but I meant it really seriously, as in, like, uh, people's understanding of Toronto is not, is very shallow. Like, it doesn't go very deep in terms of the history that it has, and people do talk about it as if it's n so new, as if it just arrived. So, that's more, <laughs> more what I meant. Yeah, I, I've become a bit of a history nerd of late. Um, and it's amazing, like, I mean, luckily I love scrunching through secondhand bookstores and I actually have more histories than I can, like, put in my, in my bookshelves. Uh, poor Chris has to live with it. Um, but, but it's also amazing to see that actually there's a, a huge amount of histories that have been written uh, and yet they register as an absence. I think th this experience of, like, a fullness and a richness that registers as a, as, a, as a nothingness or as a vacancy or as a lack, it's very interesting to me. It's really weird, but it's a thing. Like, I think you can put your finger on it and say that's Toronto, you know? Like, and it occurs at so many different registers. Um, the way that I kind of would narrate it, kind of like as, as a simple form to just kind of crystallize these ideas is not so much for me an absence of histories, but an absence of mirrors. You know, which is why I wanted to, to include this um, uh, image of Duane's. Um, there's a quote here uh, that, that I brought, but it, anyway, it, it's by a literary uh, person, Jermaine Walkerton, and she said, uh, you can only have an identification with something you can see or recognize. You need, if nothing else, an image in a mirror. And so to me, the, what's at stake per, for me in histories is that a history is a kind of proposition that this might be something you might recognize, right? If we, if we don't, and, 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 and I think that's, I think, what artists try to do with oral histories, experiences, uh, community um, forms of intelligence. This is what curators do with objects and narratives and, and, and uh, institutions. Uh, I think so many of us are involved in this kind of work, and the way I understand it is trying to present proposals so that somebody might recognize something in it, whereas before they had just experienced a kind of uh, absence of something that, that reflects and that can be useful as a kind of reflection. 
Not that that image you have to then identify with. Images are often something you rebel against, you know, to be reactionary, or you might just play with. You might just engage in a pleasure of playing with images. Um, you know, like queer culture for me has become very important. I was actually thinking this morning, you know, they used to call queer people inverts, which is such a mute and weird word. But there's something interesting about it, you know, that, that a person is an invert that has like an upside down relationship to the world. <laughs> There's something really useful for artists about that. Too much love for your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm just saying that m these mirror images we can also use as ways to kind of invert, distort, <laughs> as much as represent and recognize. Right? Um, I think that's part of what's at stake in, in history narrations for me. And we were talking earlier before tonight, we were like, ah, oh, neither one of us are doing histories. Yeah, yeah. That's These true. shows aren't history building things, right? So um, we didn't talk about that at all for you, but um, it's something to think about, like why we chose not to do histories mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. Rosemary. But you are doing histories. Yes, this but otherwise, history. yeah. There's a lot of history here. Um, I've just wondered, in terms of this, particularly the tributary show, which you've identified in a certain kind of way of a certain s series of questions, but one of the things the show doesn't at all deal with is when the AGO itself was challenged during this period. Because this period was not a time when the AGO was showing a lot of this work. What's interesting is the curators were buying it, and it was all there in the vault, mm. but it wasn't on the walls. And there was two times specifically the AJ was challenged. Uh, one was about 1978, when there was a landscape show on here, organized by Reed Paper. Yeah. And there was a huge demonstration of artists and activists about uh, minimata disease and what was going on in northern Ontario, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and then again in the early 80s, the Women's Cultural Building challenged the AGO when it was not showing any women artists in Toronto, yeah. but they were showing Judy Chicago. Um, I was sort of <laughs> interested in why those sort of activist incidents that happened, which were very important, I think, for people in the community, never really got into the shows or were raised in any kind of way. So I just wondered why. Could you obviously know them? Yeah, I know them. Um, so I ignored them on purpose. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that wasn't worthy of an AGO show. <laughs> I'm just so, I'm so kidding. That's so terrible of me. Um, no, it, you're right. And I made choices. Um, and one of the choices, uh, I was thinking about activist culture in, in a much more general way in the relationship between that and art making itself. Um, and I chose three moments that impacted art making in the city, I think, uh, which was the bathhouse raids, um, the, uh, the Africa show at um, the ROM, and the 1969 white paper, um, specifically because they're not canonized in this history at all. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring those out in a specific way in relationship to the art history of this time period. Um, and maybe the bathhouse raids are there more than other things. Uh, the other thing, I guess, is um, there are uh, challenges to uh, the AGO, sorry, um, 
that take place in the artwork themselves that I felt was um, sufficient for bringing the energy of those moments to life in the exhibition. Um, and also, I didn't want the show to be about the AGO, to be honest. I felt like that would be a moment of recentering it as the conversation. And I really, um, it is the center of the conversation for sure, it's here. But what I wanted to do was actually um, bring things uh, into the conversation now that weren't then in order to change it now, rather than looking back at that moment. Do you, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. I wanted to perform what the activists demanded instead. That's what I would say. And I, I mean, it's not perfect. It's like minor. <laughs> but we like minor today, right? <laughs> I, I've, I've told you that I think it's a brilliant gesture to have uh, some of the, the vinyl text on the windows in the galleries looking out into the city. You know, I think that there's something kind of uh, that gets activated when we're talking about histories and seeing like you're facing where the bathhouse raids happened as you're looking out the window here and there's a caption that says that and to kind of use the AGO as a moment, as a place to look out from, I think it's a, there's a very interesting ethos in that. It was so hard too because um, to keep windows open in a gallery is actually quite difficult. <laughs> and those windows haven't been open since the transformation of the AGO. And I, wanted, I was like, isn't that a metaphor for our connection to the city? The fact that we can't even open the windows to see it most of the time. I thought, well, if it's going to be a show about Toronto, then we better open the windows. Um, and feel, so I guess that's also it. It's like my, my concern was the connection of AGO to the city, to artists here, and not exactly um, the AGO's narrative of itself. More questions, but thanks for a good question. Mm -hmm. This is a more direct question to Louis. Mm -hmm. You spoke about the nature of art um, providing, com uh, what do you call it? Com uh, complicates the picture. Complicates the picture. I'm not certain about that. Mm -hmm. I think the picture is complicated by institutions. And I'm not certain about the definition of artists actually complicating things. But most often, people who are involved in cultural practice identify and magnify the complexities which already exist. How would you comment on that? Uh, it strikes me as a, as a question that complicates a statement. Uh, <laughs> uh, one interesting thing I think about how I experience artworks functioning is that they reveal something and the experience of that something is as if it's always been there, right? But it took the artwork to experience that thing. And so um, I think I'm agreeing with you in saying that um, the complications that an artwork might generate are complications that already exist in an already complicated reality. But I do think that it took the artwork and an engaged viewer uh, asking something of the artwork and being asked of something by the artwork to generate uh, that complication. Um, I hope I've, 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 have I responded to what you're trying to talk about? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be curious to know for the artists in the room that are in our shows how you feel about how you're being placed. 
I'm super curious if anyone has like the, the um, I won't use the bodily metaphor at the moment, um, has the desire to help us out with that thought. I know we're not supposed to ask you questions, but <laughs> it's <laughs> happening. I'm not an artist in the show, but I, I wasn't going to ask this, make this statement or ask this question because I didn't, in the way the conversation went, I didn't think it was really appropriate, but um, maybe now it is. And, you know, congratulations on two brilliant shows. I'm really happy to see them. Uh, what interests me in, in a way is the concurrence between the, these two very, very different exhibitions and different exhibition strategies. Uh, but uh, there is a certain degree of consensus within them in that they state a history of uh, contemporary art in Toronto as being one of uh, theatricality, performativity, uh, representation in terms of politics, and uh, the, the, the allegory. Um, which, you know, I agree with too that this is, uh, you could say this is, is Strong, dom strongly dominating in, in the art community. But I also think of, you know, the, the, that the consensus that these exhibitions build, so it's like, okay, like, let's hear from the artists here that are in the exhibition, well, let's hear from the artists here that are not in the exhibition. It's not really a matter of who's in and who's out. But for me, it's somewhat interesting that a consensus has been built that the history of Toronto art is one of the artist-run centers. Uh, and that uh, the institutions, of course, do not uh, feed into this. We know they, they didn't. But the, and what do the commercial galleries, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. But there was a real interchange between the commercial galleries and the artist-run system. So, I, so my question is, like, how do you deal with these whole histories of the 70s and the 80s that aren't encountered in these exhibitions? And do you create these minor histories? which are really histories of media, media, uh, history of painting, a history of sculpture, because when I think back to that period, what is not in this, these exhibitions, and maybe shouldn't be in these exhibitions, I don't know, but there was a, a, a strong, strong currents of painting, abstract painting, whether of sort of a color field, color-oriented, or on the other hand, uh, more conceptual and minimalist, um, and on the other hand, there was a whole rich history of sculpture that was like, uh, again abstract, but it was post-minimalist. So none of those things are in the exhibition. So why? It's in my show. Well, to a minor degree, it's like uh, exiled, you know, elsewhere in, in the <laughs> building. Uh, but how, have we made the decision that, that abstract uh, materialist phenom phenomenologically based art lost and this is the story the history that has gone out uh, i i was like what um <laughs> I, I guess yeah and people do read exhibitions this way that whatever is not on the floor of the where most of it is is minor and excluded and we have this kind of thinking it's like you can never put a gallery in a basement for the same reason nobody will ever take it seriously just because of where it's positioned in the building. Um, and that's unfortunate. 
the uh, Canadian painting two rooms that um, move from like somebody like Rita Latond, who I think is very important, to Toronto, but um, is never actually owned by Toronto as a Toronto artist. She's still thought of as if she's some French Montrealer. It's bizarre in some circles. Um, so it moves through that to where performance sort of enters into um, 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 performance and sculpture and painting sort of join. Um, it moves to, through um, a kind of abstraction from, to me, like a, a, a very strong uh, woman, women painters who kind of brought this element of uh, play and fantasy and that kind of energy into, into painting moves into um, what a, uh, like a straight up representational kind of thing. Um, so that story to me needed its own story, like it needed its own space, it needed its own, um, that could be the entire show. Like especially for me politically at the AGO, that could be the only show that we do because we have tons and tons of that work and tons and tons of sculpture, minimalist sculpture. Um, so. But those things, uh, an this is just practical stuff behind the scenes, but those things are huge, like really big. Can you imagine me showing the Zulu? There'd be nothing else. Um, so there's, there's like um, that kind of, those kinds of choices that I made in order to show other things that aren't normally seen in this context. Um, there is tributes upstairs, like the Joan Todd piece. Uh, directly, her, her dealer is like front and center in that piece. Um, there are many tributes to dealers, actually, to the commercial uh, scene, all the way through the exhibition. I wanted that more visible, but um, sort of other, other things intervened. Um, so yeah, I think um, I'm sidestepping your question, in a sense. I know, I can see it in your face. I can see it in your face. No, 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 I'm just... No, and I, I'm, I'm trying to say something. Um, and that's, I think that it's an important part of the story, but it's only one story for me. It's only one line. So it's not that I would dispense with it at all. And uh, the John McEwen uh, wolves, to me, actually are uh, quite indicative of an intervention in the entire exhibition from that place, to me. Um, so... I don't know, like, you've talked about the kind of white male abstraction thing, but I, I didn't include any white male abstraction <laughs> except for David Bultuk, but it's got gold in it. Um, <laughs> I mean, to me, I, I think this, this question actually is a, a, an exciting one because I do, it allows me to confess something and to confess a blind spot. There, there, there's, a, there's a couple of practices in Toronto that I've tried to wrap my head around and I can't. I just don't know what to do with it. Um, it, it does have a, some presence in the Foreign Flows Fiction Show. So there's the Jan Polda's piece, there's the Nobu Kubota um, Reflections piece. Uh, but the David Bolduc generation is something that I really don't know what to do with in my mind. You know, not how to historicize it, but how to allegorize it, you know? Uh, so, so the kind of Ron Shubrook, David Bolduc, it, I, 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 I find it exciting to be able to say so because I do think it's like a, 
a blankness in my capacity that uh, is very much in progress. Um, I was surprised that I was able to like kind of include a tiny bit of Painters 11, so that Harold Town uh, painting that's in the AGYU collection. Uh, because it's taken me a long time to kind of start to understand the aesthetic of Painters 11 and then the generation soon after that involved collage and the whole understanding of collage as like physical material from daily life stuck into the artwork. Uh, so Gordon Rayner and that, like that's taken a lot of effort for me to kind of get around to. But then the generation after that is the one that I'm like, it's my little, <laughs> Uh, crevice in the road that is kind of this this weird thing that I don't know what will happen with it. Andy. Hi. <laughs> um, let's see, responding as an artist in the show and, and to the conversation in general, I think that actually this, both those, both the two shows pivot from the kind of, of both color field painting and uh, and also minimal sculpt sculpture and that sort of thing. And that's, and that, as a viewer, I very much understood that, that they were, that was what was fairly dominant, uh, color field uptown at Clonaridis and uh, uh, hard edged painting and minimalist sculpture downtown at, uh, I can't, ACT, I think, before Mercer Union. But, uh, but, that pivot is also represented in the artists with Robert Houle, I think, in particular, um, I think was very much a color field painter. And at some point that wasn't enough for him. He had to deal with his identity, uh, you know, all the, those things in his life. And moved into kind of a, at first it was a very postmodern technique of, inserting, uh, you know, the Benjamin West in a, in a, you know, very formalist kind of painting that could have been Barnett Newman or somebody. So, so I, you know, I think those, those things are acknowledged in both the shows. Same with Jan Poldas and, uh, but the other thing I was thinking is that there's so many relationships that are like those underground rivers so that Jan and I would be considered the opposites, but we went to the Cameron and had, you know, snitty fights, you, you know, week after week after week and came to really respect each other and be interested in each other's work. But, uh, but Jan, you see a, a more subtle pivot in his where they're, they're still kind of autobiographical because he's taking things from his environment that he's putting into these color field paintings. They're, they're not just like, okay, I'm gonna go through the color chart kind of thing. But uh, I think there's, there's a lot of invisible relationships. I knew of uh, three quarters of the artists in the show and people like June Clark, uh, I was on the board of Mercer when her work was sh first shown and um, I've always felt this kinship with her for no apparent reason. We, grew up in very different circumstances, but there's all those relationships. After the show, the opening of the show, Robert Hull and I thought, we'd been talking about doing a show together for ages, and we said, let's do this, let's do a drawing show together. So there's, there's a lot of apparent sort of kind of hidden tributaries mm -hmm. that are in both shows that, I, that 
are illuminated in a very positive way and give the, the artists a lot of chance to rethink their work because of the recontextualization. Yeah, yeah that's I so mean, much that's better than how we said it. I know, totally. um, <laughs> 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 it. It's nice to take abstraction out and minimalism actually out of its history and yeah. place it in this context. Um, like Nakamura, like I was so fascinated by the actual physicality of doing the calculations and doing all these drawings and then putting it in and like what's the relationship there to his body, to performance, to all these other things that he's never placed in relationship to. Yeah, it, it was one of my regrets as a curator was not being able to include the work of Peter Kolisnik. Uh, we've tried from two different public collections but for conservative questions of conservation, we couldn't get the loans. But for me, I think that would be an amazing uh, way to connect the language phenomenological minimalist sculpture and the, the postmodern practices of general idea and, and on. Like if you could see those works in the same room together, uh, I think you, those connections that you just wove so beautifully, Andy, I think would become apparent and, and you really could see new connections that um, a kind of discipline um, narrative just doesn't seem to allow for. Okay. Wanda? So you're, you're tired, you don't want to spend all night here? Yeah. We you don't want to do, nap with us? You know, we all do spend want to spend all night, but camp all out. things must come to an end. I'm sorry, we're going we're gonna to have to wrap at this point. Um, I know there's a million more questions and comments in the room. Luckily, we'll be doing more programming around the exhibition in January. I encourage everyone who hasn't seen the shows or who needs to see them again to head out to the Art Museum and also the fourth floor here at the gallery. Wanda and Louis, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you all for coming. <laughs>